Welcome to Coffee and Geography, where my guests and I geek out about the world and everything on it, discovering that we are all geographers in some way, shape or form. I'm your host, Kit, and my pronouns are they, them or she, her. So settle down with a brew, hit that subscribe or follow button and enjoy the listen. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Coffee and Geography. This is going to be a fantastic discussion. Um, I always say like, you know, we I always have chats with my guests before we press the record button and we've been going now for almost 20 minutes because <laughs> I actually have a connection to the location that this person is at. Uh, Hilary Habeck Hunt, how are you? Well, this evening, this afternoon. <laughs> Greetings. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I am absolutely thrilled to be here. Yeah. And uh, we the connection that we have as is if I read the uh, just the the first sentence of your of your bio is that uh, you are a PhD student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, uh, where you are completing a joint degree in geography and environment resources. So that's two connections that we have, because as I've just said, my wife's family is from Wisconsin, from and my in-laws met at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And of course, we both did an environmental science degree. That's right. So <clears throat> Plenty of good geographical connections between us already. Oh, my good grief. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's it, folks. We, we we just really just spent, and actually, we just said, we better press record because we're just going off on one. <laughs> better get on with it, yeah. <laughs> but but it, what, what a lovely connection to make straight away. Okay, folks. So to uh, to finish introducing Hillary then. So before returning to the Academy for a PhD, um, Hillary spent nearly a decade in environmental conservation nonprofits around the United States, including Oregon, New York, and Michigan. And due to this experience, she identifies both as a practitioner and academic, and her scholarship reflects this hybridity. And we're not teaching, reading, or writing about land conservation and political ecology. She, and yes, folks, this is the third episode in a row. She nerds out on Tolkien law <laughs> and tweets about chronic illness and disability in academia. Another Tolkien fan. Yeah, I, I, I can't, I can't even answer for that. I, we must be spawning or something three in a row. <laughs> My last guest, um, Jessica Law, uh, mentioned about Tolkien's eco anxiety. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. Which was really interesting. So this is also something that I know you're very, very interested in. You know, because of environmental conservation and with the nonprofits you work with. But let I tell you what, let's. Before we talk about the usual things we start to talk about, about what you're drinking and where you're from and stuff mm -hmm. like that, does it make sense to you that Tolkien would have had eco-anxiety? It does. I think he had a lot of concern and kind of early prescience about what was happening with kind of the mechanization of the countryside and the process. I mean, really that began, you know, centuries before in rural England, obviously, but I think his obviously his experience in the war marked him deeply um, and his, mm. you know, fear for what machine can do to mankind. Um, and I think that in particular, the Ents, uh, the walking trees, uh, for those who don't have the lingo, um, they are, <laughs> they are the perfect kind of anthropomorphized version of a forest that can, you know, defend itself kind of what all, all environmental studies majors like us would like to see happening that the forest could fight back. Yeah. So yes, I think that's totally a fair statement. Yeah. And I have to do this line now. Are you ready? I'm ready. Tree. <laughs> I am no tree. I am an ant. <laughs> I can. I, I may also do my my golem for you later. I, we'll see. Fingers um, crossed on that one. Let's, let's definitely <laughs> keep that in, please. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. Um, but no, so I know, and it's it's really funny because actually uh, at the Geographical Association uh, conference, which for me was had just gone by, but for the listeners was now a couple of weeks ago. Um, one of the sessions we did was about wider reading, extended reading as a geography educator. And now after talking to yourself, to Jessica and to Ellie before that, I've realized that actually you've definitely could put Lord of the Rings on a extended reading for a geography educator. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, Christopher Tolkien. It's so clear to me now. Yeah, Christopher Tolkien was a, a cartographer, and both of them shared a really huge passion for maps, cartography, and location and the relationships. Location. I mean, yeah, total total fellow nerds of cartography. Yeah. Place. So, folks, if you're a geographer or an environmental or any kind, and you haven't read Lord of the Rings yet, you need to do it. You need to do it. Um, right. So finally, on to the standard things of this podcast. So uh, talking about coffee and geography. So uh, what do you usually drink on a um, on a Sunday afternoon then, uh, Hillary, What have you got with you today? So I have – it's raining outside, so I have my very special rain cup mug. Um, I love it. <laughs> which <laughs> I'm a huge fan of rain living in Oregon for several years, I think, just um, converted me. And um, I'm drinking peppermint tea. Uh, loose leaf peppermint tea. I'm a big believer mm -hmm. in loose leaf tea as opposed to tea bags. Um, yeah, I um, I used to drink coffee, but I think as I've gotten older, I've mellowed out a little bit, and um, <laughs> I'm sticking with the herbal teas for now. What about you? Um, it's funny you say that because uh, so a few episodes ago, um, listeners will know I talked to Hermione Miao, which is a wonderful discussion, and she said that uh, she told us about how in Chinese culture they always carry a flask of hot water, and then they put things inside it, their herbs, different herbs. She showed, and I do apologise, Hermione. I know you're listening. Um, she showed me these kind of prunes, and she told me what they were in Chinese. I couldn't remember, and some flowers as well. And when I saw her at the conference, because she was there at the conference, she gave me a bag of this stuff. That's Lesson. so lovely. So I am actually, Hermione, if you're listening, I have got with me my flask of hot water and I've got <sighs> one of those prunes, which you're going to tell me shouting at the podcast, the radio, what it is, and those flowers in my flask and it is absolutely delicious. And I am a, because I'm an avid tea drinker, but yes. I tell you what, Hermione, you've got me hooked on this. So Cheers. that's what I'm drinking. That Cheers. sounds wonderful. Yeah. yeah. And in fact, when Hermione gave me that stuff, I was I I I could I had to go and find a kettle or a hot water dispenser like every like after every session. I was like, mm -hmm. I need this flask refill because I need my <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the tea I, habit. <laughs> I'm I'm with you. I'm with you, Hillary. I I think I'm coming around. I I did drink herbal teas every now and then, but I think this is just it's just so much more soothing. And so yeah, mm -hmm. it's it's lovely. Right. Um, so Wisconsin then. So you're there, you're in Madison, Wisconsin. But I want to say, folks, what you put on your uh, on your Twitter profile is, um, is it Dejop or De, Dejoop? How do you pronounce yeah, that? Yeah, so Dejop De is Jope. the yep. Yeah, the area that is currently known as Madison, which is the capital of the state of Wisconsin. Um, and Dejop is the word for the place name in the Ho-Chunk language um which are the people indigenous to and with a continuing presence um on this this landscape that i inhabit as well yep so um and this is so yeah so in in hochak in it's in ho chunk so it is spelled h-o-o-c-a with a little tilde at the 
on the bottom of it, a little tail, K, but it's spelled Ho-Chunk. So in Ho-Chunk language, Dayjob translates as four lakes named after the deep lakes that define the landscape that provide a high quality of life for all living beings, plant, animal, and in between the periodic ice ages that covered the, the Dayjob in a mile-thick sheet of ice. So uh, what I'll do, folks, that's from um, Tribal Relations. Oh, the University of Wisconsin-Madison's website, actually, uh, and the mm-hmm. significance and history. So I'll put a link in the... Uh, description for that for you folks it's a really interesting um read so hillary why i mean obviously talking to me personally you're preaching to convert it mm-hmm. but but why is it important that us as uh, with a settler background with a colon colonization background that we must recognize these indigenous lands that that these places are now occupying in your opinion what do you think yeah, I think that knowing place names in the language that evolved in that place um, is really important because what could be a more descriptive name than the name that emerged from humans' experience over millennia on that landscape? I mean, thinking about like the place of the lakes or the four lakes, um, we do have four lakes here in Madison, and the, I believe that Madison is actually named after James Madison, yes. which has nothing to do with Wisconsin, um, whereas Dayjope is actually a descriptive geographic place name, unlike Madison, which is just a far-off um, bureaucrat <laughs> president. So there you go. ultimately, yep. it's a better description. Yep, exactly. And uh, folks, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm not going to... I haven't practiced the pronunciation of these words, and I do not want to disrespect the you know the indigenous cultures by trying, you know, to trying to pronounce these. But if you go to the website that I just mentioned, it really does give exactly what Hillary's just said, a really good description about what these names actually mean. And it's like, um, so you've got the uh, the indigenous term for the Catfish River because where the Catfish, is, which is now the Yahara River. Um, the one which is called, which is uh, the the lakeshore, which is called where the person rests. If you try, if the direct translation mm-hmm. in English, it's a beautiful, and that's now Lake um, Mendota. So, mm-hmm. but it's right. it's it's indigenous name was where the person rests. Uh, Great Teepee right. Lake, which is now make Lake Monona. Uh, Tall Reed Lake. I wonder why they called that that. That's Lake uh, Warbessa, <laughs> and Hard Maple Grove Lake which is now Lake uh, Kegon- Kegonsa. So there you go, folks. You know, that's just exactly what we're talking about. And it, re- it reminds me actually here of a discussion I had in the first season uh, where we talked about language and, and how in indigenous languages, it's so much more rich and descriptive. Like mm-hmm. they would have 12, a dozen or more word for a tree, but to represent a tree in its different life cycle or its different purposes or its different uses or its, or its situation. And it's, this is why we need to hold on to these things because we're losing a richness of our connection to the earth. Otherwise I feel. Absolutely. And I think it also comes back to, to sovereignty and recognizing that using these names is giving power to those names and giving power to the people that use those names and, you know, kind of calling to the land in a way that acknowledges and uplifts the sovereignty of the people um, who, who are, um, mm. the kind of rightful owners and dwellers on it. And I think that's um, that's very important as well. Yeah, totally agree. So so are you, so you, you say you're from the with, with 
uh, Midwest. Is is that your is that your bar- your background, your heritage? Have you been a settler of this region and then moved and then been to other parts, like you said, Oregon, New York, Michigan? So is this your is this your grounds then? Yeah. So I'm a settler, um, descended European American, and um, yeah. So I've um, I think I've you know I worked hard to kind of give back to the Midwest, which is where I was raised. I was raised in Michigan, okay. um, and then I spent time on both coasts. A couple different states on both coasts before returning to the um, to Wisconsin to the other side of Lake Michigan um, to do my PhD. So I think of myself as a kind of like a returned Midwesterner. A lot of people <laughs> leave for the coast and never come back, and I just couldn't be couldn't be restrained. So I'm I'm here again. <laughs> Yeah, actually, shout out to one of my my uh, old friends who's from Troy, Michigan, uh, who actually did exactly the same thing, moved out to the coast, and then uh, she's a, a singer songwriter, and and she actually wrote a song about um, returning to the Midwest, but you know, but missing the coast at the same time. So uh, I, I definitely, yeah, that that Paul is definitely um, in popular culture in that respect. Mm-hmm. So, but the question I like to always ask people here is, when you've when you've gone about your travels. Um, oh, what was it? That it was that so- that Baz Luhrmann song, which was um, uh, "Ladies and Gentlemen of the Class of '99, Wear Sunscreen." That was it, and it <laughs> says, "You know, live in California, but leave before it makes you too soft, and live in New York City, but leave before it makes you hard." So, is that true for you? Have you taken a? Have you brought back a piece of the West mm. Coast in Oregon back to the Midwest, and have you brought a piece of the East Coast in New York back to the Midwest? Is there anything that's part of your identity now that's manifested within your Midwest identity? What a great question. I think that's, I think that's very true of Boz, very well um, stated. (laughs) I think that I did live in Oregon for several years and I think I brought back, like I talked about my, my newfound passion for rain. Um, But I think on a more serious note, I, I do think that the kind of public spiritedness of Oregon was very, uh, motivating for me when I was involved in nonprofit work. Mm. I really appreciated that. There seems to be kind of like a um, pitch-in type culture out there. People don't tend to just, you know, like in New York, I really appreciate how um, people just move and get on with their day and <laughs> <Yes>. just, you know, the pace is very quick. Um, and I appreciate how upfront and brusque people are. But I think that there's... Um, yeah, I, I, I do feel like I've brought back the kind of um, attempt, at least, to bring back that kind of pitch-in culture from Oregon. Mm. Um, and I think the Midwest is, you know, very grounded, which I definitely try to be um, on the grounded side of things. But then I do think in some moments it can really help to bring kind of the um, the East Coast uh, <laughs> <laughs> brusqueness. And, like, you know, there are moments when applying that is helpful. So I feel like I've... Um, and the Midwest is probably the average of the two. So I feel like I probably <laughs> ended up where I began anyway. Yeah. And I feel that's true because one, my wife's family who are from uh, Wisconsin, uh, one one of my wife's cousins has you know, lives in Manhattan, lives in New York City now. And yeah. she definitely embodies the spirit of the East Coast. I mean, the whole family, they love... Oh, I love them to bits. They are such, they are characters and everything. But but yeah, she really does it does embody the East Coast, and she definitely brings that back to her whenever we see her in, in mm-hmm. Wisconsin. Bless her. Right. Um, before we move on, just we just want to go back to about um, Indigenous place as well. So um, one thing uh, I'd like to share with with folks um, is something called the the native uh, native land map. 
And to find this, folks, I really do strongly recommend you have a little play around with it. It's called um, native-land.ca. So it's hosted in, in Canada, but it's it's been used by academics uh, in in consultation with indigenous peoples to try and map indigenous lands, territories, languages, and treaties. So I've sent um, I've sent Hillary the link as well to have a little look at. And then if you were to type in, for example, Madison, Wisconsin, you'll see that yes, absolutely, you've got the 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 Ho Chunk land there. Where, but you've also got these overlapping territories through history. So the Sauk, the Fox, the the Kickapoo as well. That's really interesting. So. So what should we look at? Should we have, so whereabouts roughly was you in Oregon then, uh, then Hillary? Let's have a look. You, um, I was in, in, yeah, I was near in Eugene for a while and then Portland. Let's so either Portland. one of those. So folks, so, so yes, yeah, so if we search for Portland, we have four overlapping areas that come up. So we have, it, well, it just goes to show that territory, territory is not, well, you know what it does, Hillary, for me, and I'd like to hear your comment about this. Doesn't it just go to show how inadequate it is for us to stick an arbitrary line for a map? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, just just tell us what we can see just by looking at current, you know, currently yeah. Portland. So, looking at here, we have at least four or five different nations territories kind of converging near the Willamette River, mm. um, just just near modern day Portland, and it is amazing to see. You know, they have them kind of um, in a color gradient in this, yeah. in this uh, GIS. And I think it's it's amazing to see how how different this is from like a modern day um, settler view of the townships or counties is what we use in the U.S. Like the townships within a county would be um, slicing up this map and there'd be no, you know, there's no uh, no land held in common. Right. There's no yeah. um, no overlap. Everything's just administrative boundary cut and dry black and white so it is interesting to look at this um and think about what that might mean and i, I don't really know what it means so i would be hesitant to offer a yeah no of that, but. it's definitely a lot it's definitely something uh, you know for learning for for myself and people listening as well um what i have not i, I can't believe i didn't know i didn't spot this when i was showing this at the conference the other the other day but there is a link on just in the key that says and it says, think critically about this map. And what it does, it mm. takes you to a teacher's guide, uh, which was the most recent version is 2019. And it tells you about, uh, it says, the guide discusses the pros and cons of the maps itself, the importance of learning more about colonialism and provides resources for teachers to learn more. So they, even the makers of the map understand exactly what you just said, Hillary, is that we have to think about this it isn't just cut and dry you know it does put us in a learning zone as well so right right yeah amazing but folks do check that out it is it's i'd say it it will change your worldview for the better honestly and at the moment they've got they've covered they've they've got australia um on there they've definitely got you know places all around africa uh and the americas so yeah and <clears throat> and i was well i was i suppose now that i think about it maybe not so surprised but even in scandinavia in northern you know northern russia and things like that of course that you know there's going to be this kind of similar situation going on there so yeah do check that, that out cool yeah. yeah very neat right okay let's get back to, let's get back to you personally now so I really, really want to hear about 
um, what you've been up to. So you've put here that you're you've, you've had you got an undergraduate degree in Spanish and environmental science, so and social work, and your master's in nonprofit management. So you say here when you start to draw the Venn diagram between those four disciplines, it completely makes sense. So yeah, tell us a little about these four aspects: um, nonprofit work, social work, environmental, science, and Spanish, and how they just seem to intersect. <laughs> I'm, I'm fascinated. Yeah. So unfortunately, unlike the UK, in the US, we don't really have geography as a subject in school. It's kind of just lumped under the larger social work. Mm. I mean, social studies, you know, experience like in middle school and elementary school. So you'd have like maybe a unit in geography. But really, what I remember from geography is just getting quizzed on a map. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's all it was. Um, and then we went straight back to studying like the ancient Greeks. <laughs> um, so there was, you know, there was really no um, interest and, you know, acknowledgement in geography as a discipline in the way that we studied like chemistry and physics and biology and math and the languages like those were seen as disciplines. Um, and so for me, I, I don't even think that I, I realized that geography was a thing that I could do. I thought it was just the map quizzes. Um, <laughs> and then, so I went all through my undergrad years at the University of Michigan, um, studying very applied things. So Spanish language, um, environmental science like you, and social work. So it doesn't get any more applied than those three things. I mean, there's Absolutely. nothing theoretical about those three disciplines. It's all yeah. just <laughs> practicing the skill. Mm. Um, and I loved that and it was great. Um, and then I worked for a couple of years and went back to get a master's degree in nonprofit management, which is kind of like a MBA for nonprofits. So, okay. you know, administrating and doing policy work, that sort of thing. Um, and then after that, I spent several years doing kind of land conservation work at nonprofits. And when I came back this most recent time, there's like a pattern emerging here that I go out and do work and then I come back to academia, I go out and do work, then I come back and get fresh ideas. I think that might be my my pattern so far. Mm -hmm. But when I started this last time, I started with a PhD in um, environment and resources at the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies, which is at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And uh, my advisor, Paul Robbins, is actually a geographer. and you know, he slowly really brainwashed me <laughs> <laughs> in a wonderful way to become a geographer. Um, and through that process of reading the, you know, geographic theory and thinking geographically about problems and, you know, the, the kind of approach that he took, I realized, and I, we went, we had an advising meeting and I said, Paul, I, I have to tell you something. I, I think I'm a geographer. <laughs> <gasps> <laughs> and he was thrilled and he was like fantastic you can do a joint degree no problem we'll get all the admin stuff sorted and I, then you can get started <laughs> i tell you what hillary we've got geography teachers going yes you want to listen to this because that's exactly what happens when our ex-students come to us and they say you know what you were right <laughs> i mean i i really think like we need a, a more we need geography um, in high school in the U.S. because it's just not it's not part of the curriculum and mm. I I wish so much that I'd had that because I think if I'd realized that there was a way to be qualitative and quantitative and spatial and problem solving and theoretical all at the same time yeah 
I wouldn't have needed to have three different courses of study in my undergrad. I would have just done geography. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, and so I think I, I really see, I, I, I just appreciate the discipline so much. And I'm so lucky that I got to, you know, very late in life, but still got to make a home in this discipline. Yeah. And uh, as I said to you before we started recording, I've, I think that you would have felt so, so, so at home at the uh, Geographical Association conference. I, I know, folks, it sounds like I'm promoting them, promoting them, promoting them. I'm a sponsor and all that kind of stuff. No, it's just because that's what I just generally feel. So if, if I reach down and look at the program, actually, see if I can. Let's. I've got all of my stuff from the conference still on the floor here. <laughs> we need a little musical interlude, yeah. yeah. Where is it, my precious? Where is it? Ah, no. <laughs> so. <laughs> I don't know. I've, maybe I shouldn't cut that bit out. Um, so, uh, <laughs> so I'll, I'll just I'll just give you a couple of examples then. Um, so, one workshop: um, sustainable schools. How can geography achieve help achieve school sustainability? Uh, another one here: year twelve students, which is eleventh grade, really. Uh, year twelve students: ep- epistemological and methodological ideas. Um, mm-hmm. Divergent geographers: mudlarks of the Thames foreshore. Uh, mm-hmm. GI pedagogy curriculum hub. Uh, what else? Tectonic teamwork using social media to extend subject knowledge. Thinking, That's amazing. Thinking critically about climate education. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I already met my one reteach, um, wider geographical reading for the classroom. And one more. Um, oh yes, the uh, the four C's: a whole school approach to the climate and nature emergencies. So mm. you know, and that's that's a geography teachers conference and. And yeah, when you say environment science, social work, nonprofit, and I'm thinking, oh yeah, you know, I remember doing that unit with with my students about this, and this where all these things intersect and stuff like that. So um, yeah, um, we we have one of our ex teachers here, who a really good friend of mine, Hannah. Hello, Hannah, um, who has moved over to the east coast of the United States, who now teaches over there, and she's like, it's it's totally different. As you just said, mm-hmm. we don't yeah. teach. I'm a science teacher here, basically. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I think geographers here get immediately um, kind of put into the, the environmental science or even geology bin, um, which just, it has geo at the beginning, so it must be the same thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think that, yeah, I mean, especially – yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that your friend is, you know, bringing the, the good word um, of geography to the U.S. But I, I, I do feel like that, you know, I was at the um, AAG, which is our kind of American geographers um, association or kind of like trade association meeting. I went virtually because of chronic illness, which we'll discuss. Mm-hmm. But um, it was really interesting, like seeing... Uh, it, there's such an emphasis on higher education and graduate school and all these things. And it's like, that's all well and good. I'm a mm. geography graduate student, but um, how do we expect people to arrive here yes. if we're not leading them along the way? I mean, how, like I was so fortunate that I just had a geographer for an advisor. Otherwise this wouldn't have happened. Um, so I, I, I really, I really think that should be more of an emphasis here. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I totally agree. And and I don't know folks, if you know, if you're, still i'm annoying about being a job for society yes we're biased of course but but we i've said it so many so many times is that geography is an interdisciplinary intersectional discipline like you cannot cannot take one thread of something without pulling on another so t- take 
plate tectonics. And this blew my mind, Hilary. Um, we were listening to, I think it was um, good, my good friend Alistair Hamill was also being on the podcast. And, and he was saying that, um, yes, of course, you know, we must be aware of weather conditions and weather forecastings during the middle of an eruption. And I thought, yeah, of course, well, of course that makes sense. You know, if, a, if, if heavy rains come through and they rain through a pyroclastic cloud or ash, you know, they can cause mud flows. Like, yeah, of course that. And, and But then what he said blew my mind. He was like, if you get heavy, you know, for example, if heavy rains come on and you've got you've got um, thin crust and those rains quite heavy, they can actually cause an eruption. And my mind just went, I know this is very very punny, but mine went, you know, yeah. So it's like, <laughs> oh my god, I never really thought about that. And yet my speciality was meteorology, and now I think, yeah, you destabilize the soil, and then that can cause fractures and it can cause destabilization of course that and that could re- take a release of pressure and could cause an eruption and so you can't think about tectonic processes without thinking about meteorological processes right. and then and then of course you've got the human element the risk factors mm-hmm. why people live there and then you've got the colonial element because some people are forced to live there because of because of history and it's just like yeah that's mm-hmm. why it's so beautiful yeah. and like you said with the map we never stop learning we have to look yeah. at it a bit deeper It's such a beautiful thing. There's always another question to ask. Absolutely. Yeah. Hi, folks. A chance for you to recharge your brew, but also a polite prod to remind you that it's so easy to support this podcast. Simply liking, sharing, rating, and reviewing means that it will get on more people's radar. Also, there are a few links down in the description which may be of mutual benefit. Please do check them out. So you've you've done your you've defended your PhD and you become <laughs> Doctor Hillary. Um, what would you what would you say is is the bit of your PhD which which uh, you really can't wait to present to you know when you're presenting them and you're defending it? So give us give us a very short spiel of of a highlight yeah. of what you're, what you're doing at the moment. Yes, absolutely. So I couldn't I couldn't leave my past in environmental nonprofits and land conservation behind. So that's a big part of my PhD. Um, my dissertation explores, you know, kind of broadly. Um, here's a you know big picture setting sure. for you. It explores the boundaries and the practices of non capitalist or more than capitalist land conservation. So thinking about protected areas in a more expansive way than just the traditional kind of like buy and sell um, Mm. for conservation. Um, And I would say that my work is very much inspired by Julie Graham and Catherine Gibson, who are amazing feminist economic geographers. Um, And they wrote together as JK Gibson Graham. Folks might know them from that name. Um, And kind of thinking about the the more than capitalisms, the beyond capitalisms, the capitalism ands. Um, mm. And I think that kind of alternative economies um, piece is a big part of my work, as well as just generally, um, I, you know, I do mixed methods research. So I do um, some GIS and remote sensing, not very skillfully. I do um, ethnographic kind of um, semi-structured interviews and um, uh, surveys as well. So some quantitative stuff in there. So I'm a, a very mixed methods person studying a, a interdisciplinary question. So there's plenty to muddy the waters and but also <laughs> plenty of ways for people with different approaches to engage with it. Yeah. And when that when that stuff gets published, you, you 
I've, I'm already envisaging so many different ways of people stemming from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that sounds really, really exciting. And I'm very excited to be following like how that goes. And uh, I'll look forward to to hearing, seeing those tweets of yours here who say, I'm defending my pitch because I want to have a, I want to learn what I read. So that's Thank amazing. Thank you. That's lovely. Uh, it's, I, I wrote, I'll, I'll send you the link as well. And I, I might, if people are interested, I'll put um, it in the description as well. I actually wrote an article uh for a geography teaching website called if you're called can't see the wood for the trees rethinking for uh, rethinking rainforest sustainability um Mm -hmm. because i was so i'm i'm so fed up of this whole classic capitalist um Mm -hmm. eurocentric model of sustainability and i and i and i went on and the article was a bit of a it it, i didn't manage to get it published actually in student facing um i um articles uh journals because it was too meta apparently <laughs> so yeah. a friend of mine says we'll put it on our website kit because it really is a right. so and I'll, so i'll put that on there folks well and i had a, and it, it really is a thought experiment you know it's like you know how would you you know that classic venn diagram of environmental social mm-hmm. and economic you know how you know we know what that looks like traditionally and they've got to be balanced to be sustainable all that nonsense right, right. and then challenging that concept so um mm-hmm. and so uh, I'd love to hear your your critique of it um, and see where where I could go forward with that. That would be amazing. Um, you mentioned uh, about uh, disability and chronic illness, um, yeah. And uh, I love that you are very happy to talk about that and be visible with that. So, so yeah. Um, I really don't know what question to start with, but basically, yeah. So. Tell us a little bit about uh, how you know what it is, and 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 you mentioned about you know sometimes you might have to um, do things virtually because of it, mm-hmm. and how you manage it, and um, yeah, and how it defines you as a person, how you uh, how you well, I wouldn't say overcome it because I, I think that's a, you know I have my own I'm neurodivergent right. I wouldn't say overcoming right. it that 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 degenerates who I am as a person. Exactly. How do you make it a part of yourself, and how do you thrive yeah. through it? Yeah, exactly. I think. So I am, um, I wasn't, uh, born with chronic illness and disability. It kind of happened in the last, um, five years. It's kind of like a slow slope, I would say, um, kind of like experiencing it, you know, like rolling faster and faster, realizing Mm. what was happening. Um, so it's been, I think for me, because prior to becoming disabled and, and sick, I was a very outdoorsy person. We chatted a little bit at the beginning about being camp counselors and yeah. putting up tents, building fires, hiking, blah, 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 like all these like, you know, pursuits, um, most of which are s- somewhat out of reach for me at this point. Right. Um, and I think that it was a real journey around redefining my relationship with the outdoors, but also with land and space thinking geographically. I mean, I used to belong kind of almost anywhere outdoors. And as that changed, those sort of reflections um, got me thinking about space and my relationship more theoretically and more geographically. Um, And I think that, you know, although I can't cover ground physically like I used to, I still, you know, can think about it and theorize about it and ask people about it and even remotely sense land cover um, and have different ways of engaging with it um, as opposed to the traditional kind of 
outdoorsy person. Yeah. Um, and I think within academia, so part of the reason I left the environmental conservation industry was because it wasn't possible to do my work while being sick. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I spent as much time indoors writing grants as I could. And then there were days when I just had to be out in the field and often those days coincided with pretty severe symptoms. Um, and that got kind of scary after a while. And so I realized I'd much rather be indoors with books. <laughs> All right. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. Or at least have the option to be indoors with books whenever I need to be. Um, and so um, I think that for me, um, I it's made me more of a theoretical person and more of a generative person. Um, thinking about like my scholarship, um, as opposed to someone who's kind of like out there making things happen and like kind of reacting and um, a doer, a pusher. So I, I appreciate it for it's the way that it's forced me to reflect. But I also think there are really serious systemic barriers to being yes. disabled and chronically ill, especially as a graduate student. Um, the really low salaries that um, TAs, I'm a teaching assistant, um, mm. get um, are you know, often barely enough to cover the expensive medical care, especially yeah, here yeah. where we have, you know, almost everything's out of pocket. Um, and I think also, you know, finding safe housing, housing that will, you know, meet your needs, whatever those are for breathing, for air conditioning, for, you know, et cetera, et cetera, mm. stairs, blah, blah, blah. All of those things are really hard on a limited budget. Um, so a lot of um, chronically ill people don't come into academia because the process of going through kind of the impoverishment and the low income of being a graduate student is prohibitive. Yeah. Um, so a lot of abled and healthy people, I would say, um, are able to continue. And another thing that has been interesting for me to negotiate is kind of the, I think the very masculinist idea of being out in the field, mm. meaning that you have to be like a, you know, male, person standing atop like a hill like having climbed it and understanding it perfectly right yeah that's what people think about when they talk about you know like mapping you're exploring geography right and it's like well actually like a lot of my interviews um will be held like just sitting on people's porches or like over zoom or you know it's not and i think that's kind of like a a, a very feminist challenge to the discipline and i appreciate the fact that the disability justice framework has, um, you know, that thinking and all of the dreaming that's been done in disability justice has created that space for me. Um, but I also acknowledge that, you know, I'm very, I'm very privileged in so many ways. I mean, I'm white, I'm settler, um, I'm straight, I'm cis, mm. all these things are, you know, ways that I am able to conform and, you know, go through academia more easily. So just because I'm disabled, I'm, you know, much more privileged than I am um, uh, marginalized. And so I think I also want to acknowledge that because I, I want to make sure that people understand that um, that's a big part of it as well. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much for sharing that with all, with us. Um, and I, I think what you're demonstrating as well is something I really try to do as well is, is acknowledging our privileges and checking our privileges is, should not be a destructive thing it should not be something to fear mm -hmm. it should be something to embrace um and and I, my experiences i've mirrored yours very much you know you, yes i have certain barriers put in front of me being being transgender but 
you know, and being uh, not straight. But also I do have the privileges of being white, of having gone through the education system, having gone to university, have, you know, being mm-hmm. a homeowner and, mm-hmm. and being mobile and things like that. And, and yes, I'm neurodivergent, but physically I am able to go out and do things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, that does, I don't fear that. I acknowledge it and mm-hmm. I try and pay it forward. Um, and I try and step aside for people who don't have the same voice that I do. Um, and the other thing as well is that I want to say, firstly, you're amazing, right? It's the first thing I want to say. And the second thing is folks who are listening, what I think you've done to, for some teachers, maybe even to some students listening who feel that geography is not accessible for them because of that stereotype you said. You've got to be fit. You've got to be healthy. You're going to go out on hikes and walks. You've got to be able to do 10 <laughs> miles a day. You've got to look, you know, you've got to be this very masculine. Yeah, that is a barrier for that perception is a barrier to people and educator folks uh i mean a lot of people listen to this know me very well they know where i'm coming from but but folks we have to think of these things when we're portraying our subject our discipline of geography how are we coming across and hillary is a perfect example of of you know barriers have been put in place but she can still not only contribute but really move things forward as well despite the barriers in her place. And that's like what I said, when, when her PhD research comes out, it's going to be so valuable. It's going to be amazing, right? And if Hillary never had that opportunity because of the barriers put in her place, it, it's no benefit to anybody. It puts, Thank it lets everybody so down. Much. That's such a lovely thing to say, Kit. Thank you. It, well, one thing people know about me is that I talk from the, I'm, I wear my sleeve on my heart and I, I'm honest. So. <laughs> um, so that is an absolute genuine sentiment Hillary. so uh, please folks you know if you've got students in your classroom who are feeling that there are barriers in place if you can just play the segment that you just heard that would be amazing thank you so much um so should we move on to to uh make make it a bit of fun out of you now shall we let's do it let's i'm ready it. yeah um <laughs> So, so for our spill the bean segment, you put here that for a geographer, you are terrible at strategy board games that involve space and moving pieces around the board. For example, you'll never understand the settlers of of Catan. I I hate that game as well. You know what? <laughs> I you know what? I'm also terrible at. I'm terrible at risk. I get pummeled yeah. at risk yeah. every single time. But what exactly. I'm going to do, I'm going to combine your fear of strategy board games and your love of Lord of the Rings. <laughs> so what I'm going to do. I mean, Sounds intriguing, yeah. (laughs) So what I've done, right, is that I've found, uh, this is the Lord of the Rings, L-O-T-R dot fandom dot com. So basically the the one wiki to rule them all website. All right, all right. I love that recognition, right? And what I've done, I've gone to the battles category page. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to give you five battles and uh, we're going to play, this is a cross between Spill the Beans and, and Jog On, which is where you get to talk about three of them and we'll see if we, we, you, we got your knowledge about them. I'll try to be okay. nice and that the, these, are, these, are, these are ones that you can probably talk about. So the way this works, Hillary, is that you can pass on two, but you must talk about three of the five, right? And if you want to okay, talk about it, it, you say Jog On. And if you don't want to talk about it, you say Take a Hike. That's my Perfect. way of trying to be okay. quirky. Right. Okay, well, let's let's start. So the first one I've got on my list is um, one that you probably are quite familiar with, actually. So you might want to jog on with this one, and that is the Battle of the Five Armies. 
Sure. You yeah. jogging on? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Jog on. Yeah. Okay. Good. So, so tell us about about the fiber, and if you could talk about the strategies involved as well. Sure. Sure. <laughs> I will say this: I am not a fan of the Hobbit movies. So <laughs> no, a lot of people um, not. <laughs> so I'm just gonna put that out there. But um, but I, and I haven't read the Hobbit as much as I should have, but I will try. So um, Thorin and company have built a wall, and they are kind of they have kind of. Uh, Basically, everyone is uh, holding a siege outside of the gates of um, their fortress um, in the Lonely Mountain. And I think that the five armies referred to... So I know that the Elven King brings his army. Mm -hmm. I know that there's orcs, goblins. I think they're called goblins in The Hobbit, actually, that show up. Um, I know that there's Dane Ironfoot... And his yep. army. Oh, well remembered. Yep. <laughs> and then I believe that there's an army led by Bard from the um, Lake Town. Lake Town. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but then my question is, what's the fifth army? Is maybe Thorin's group called the fifth army? There's only like, what, 13 of them? So you had, you had, that you had seems. Thranduil and you had uh, right. Warhir as well. So oh, the Eagles the is Eagles. one. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So Thranduil is the, the Elven King, which is why. He's called the Elven King in the Hobbit. So, hat tip to the to the lore folk oh, there. Yep. <laughs> All right, four out of five, pretty good. Yeah, right. So, you know what I love about uh, about wikis are how detailed they are. Right. This is the strength of the. So, first of all, <clears throat> the strength of 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 the five armies. Right. A thousand elf spearmen and several hundred of the archers of the Woodland Realm, at least 500 dwarves from, of the Iron Hills, <laughs> 200, 300 lake men, several hundred great eagles, one baroning, and I love this. Oh, sure. Hobbit. (laughs) (laughs) One Hobbit. Bilbo, bless him. And on the other side, it just says innumerable orcs, bats, and wolves. Yeah, I was thinking about the bats, too. I I, I was thinking I forgot to mention them in my account. Yeah, because they were battling the the eagles, yeah. Sure. Um, Right, okay, okay. Perfect. Battle of the Five Armies, which is is basically the whole of the third movie of the Hobbit. It is, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Peter Jackson really stretched that out, yeah. Yeah. Right, okay. (laughs) So the next one is the the Battles of the Fords of Eisen. You going to talk about you you can talk about this one or do you want to pass? I think I want to pass that. Okay. I'm not sure how expansive they're thinking with that one. Okay, so this is when the the Rohirrim and the Urukai um clashed uh with Theodred. Um mm-hmm. I think that was that when Prince Theodred was killed, I think. Spoiler. I think fell, yeah. He <laughs> yeah. technically I think he technically died at uh the Golden Hall, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he, he was brought home injured, yeah. Okay, so we're skipping that one. Um, let's see, what was the other one I got here? Um, oh, yes. So, I don't know if you know this one. Oh, the skirmish at Amon Hen. Yeah, sure. You can talk about it. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so this, so uh, what do I say? Trot on? No. Uh, jog on. <laughs> jog on. <laughs> Trot. Um, so, Amon Hen is when Aragorn leads the fellowship minus Gandalf. Um, down the the Great River, and um, they are headed for um, Emin Wheel to get into Mordor, um, but they stop to uh, spend the night at Amon Hen and then cross the river at, in darkness. Um, so all the members of the Fellowship are there except for Gandalf, and little do they know 
that they have been tracked this whole time by Saruman's Urukai. Mm. Um, and so then they get into a battle with them there. I I think there's like a hundred of them, or I don't I don't know the numbers. I have to admit I'm not that that. The intense, wiki just says many. <laughs> Many. Okay, I should have just gone with that. Just just show confidence, never show weakness, right? Um, so many Urukai. Um, and so, um, unfortunately, the outcome of that is that Boromir sacrificed himself to save yeah. Mary and Pippin. Yeah. Which was totally worth it. Totally worth it. Absolutely. I mean, oh, my God. Huge Mary and and Sean, Sean yeah. Bean absolutely yeah. nails, nails yeah. it. Absolutely nails it. Because yeah. um, you go from hating the bloke to. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, um, so yeah, it's, as, exactly as you said. So that was when there was a skirmish there. Borum, it said, uh, and I love the outcome, the way they've written the outcome. So, conflict, War of the Ring, date uh, February twenty sixth, thirty nineteen. Place <laughs> hand. Outcome: tactical victory for Isengard. Strategic failure, apparently, for Isengard, um, because of course it led to the breakup of the Fellowship, which actually worked in Frodo and Sam's favour. So that's yeah. why I'm guessing it was deemed a strategic failure. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, so we'll be on the fourth one. Um, I had to have this one, the Battle of the Hornburg. Oh, yeah, that's my favorite. Yeah. yeah. Um, Jogging definitely on, jog on. So, um, yeah, so differently to the movie yes um the the rescuer is actually Urkenbrand, who comes with the men of ooh, westfold i think that's right yeah. to the rescue of um legolas gimli aragorn theoden etc the entire household all the rohirrim that were there um and i think that that was uh like something like ten thousand urukai versus like yeah. a few hundred within the the Hornburg, um, the the fortress. And so that I mean that's like a rousing victory for for mankind, for the good guys, I would yep. say. And then then I feel like I'm narrating an audiobook at this point. Um, <laughs> so then once the good guys win, once Urkenbrand shows up, and they're not on horses, they're on foot, which makes it even more impressive they walked for like four days to get there or something. The Huorns who yes. are a like violent species of ant, not totally clear on that. Some, some subspecies, but more vengeful, perhaps more hasty. You might say, um, the Huorns show up. Be hasty. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the Huorns show up and then the fleeing Urukai get eaten by the Huorns, which is amazing. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I, how'd I, I do on that one? Oh, that was amazing. I'll tell you what though. That was, um, that was absolutely brilliant for, uh, um, for that bit because you've uh, that was one of my favorite parts of that movie is, is just at the mm-hmm. very end when they're all running away and then uh, you just see the trees just and then you hear dismembering occurs dismembering of the occurs like it was too graphic to actually see that but it, but I had it right um, well great so the, the the fifth one which I which I had um, so obviously we, we was going to skip because you've, you've had your free unfortunately was the uh, the oh, battle of the, the the, the Pelagir, which is um, oh, yeah. when um, I think is that where was that when the the army of the dead comes over and takes over the uh, yep. all the, the pirate the pirate ships Vomba. that's kind of a niche one though that yeah. would have been fun to pull that yeah. one out of my sleeve yeah yeah right okay folks so because Hillary did that so well. I'm going to keep my promise. Right. So I am. G- 
can't believe I'm going to do this. I'm going to introduce the last segment of the podcast as Gollum. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, give the people what they want. (laughs) Well, I promised you and you did that so well. Right. Okay. Here we go. Okay, well, the false and tricky Hillary has tricked me into doing this, the stupid hobbit. <clears throat> so, oh, sorry, folks, sorry. Okay, so what we're going to do now is we are going to do, we are all geographers. Yes, precious. No, we're not. Who wants to do that stupid thing that kids come up with? Come on. Not, not listening, not listening. So, well, Hillary... What do we got? To- <laughs> My throat's giving out now. <laughs> I can't do it anymore. <laughs> Bravo, uh, that was amazing. Right. Andy Circus would be just that. That was phenomenal. I'm coming really. at you, Andy. I'm coming at you. Right. Okay. So what we are geographers is is when each guest comes up with a word for the next guest to talk about for thirty seconds. Okay. So and you can relate it to geography or your work, or you could just opine for thirty seconds. So. Jessica Law, our last guest from last week, came up with the word glide for you. Mm. So, I mean, if you want to talk about the eagles and all the rings and gliding, that's fine. <laughs> but but no, so so Hillary, yeah, so for 30 seconds, it's just absolutely um, riffing on the word glide. So You know, my first thought, this is so funny, is there's a, spe- uh, um, a brand of floss in the United States called Glide. Yes, and that is, is my first thought. It's very <laughs> unpoetic, um, incredibly <laughs> practical. Um, I, I've also, I also, it also makes me think of um, hang gliding, um, which I, I did. Yeah. So um, I did go hang gliding once actually. Um, and that was incredible. I'm trying to think if it has any connection to geography. It was uh, spring break, senior year of high school. Um, and, um, well, I guess the place it takes, you know, where it took place was pretty interesting geographically. So it happened in the Outer Banks of North Carolina, which oh. are a series of barrier islands that are kind of connected by, you know, thin strips and now highways to um, the mainland. Um, and they're, you know, one of the first places that's battered by hurricanes that come yeah, to that, yeah. um, that region. And so that's kind of an amazing place, actually, geographically. I mean, it's just, you can literally see from one side to the other. It's so narrow. Yeah. Um, kind of a scary place to hang glide, actually, for that matter. Um, <laughs> lots of water. <laughs> yeah. But um, anyway, really cool place. And um, that's actually where planes were invented. And if we didn't have planes, we wouldn't have remote sensing. We wouldn't have GIS. We wouldn't have satellites. And we probably wouldn't have geography as we know it in the modern day. Oh, lovely. I'll tell you what, I didn't, I forgot to set my timer and I don't care because that was, that worked perfectly. I love how you <laughs> weaved it in. Yeah. If we didn't, yeah. Okay. Your kitty hawk. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, you have now the the, uh, the pleasure of um, giving our next guest a word that they have to talk about at the end of the episode. You know, I thought about this ahead of time and everything that came to mind was way too easy. So I <laughs> looked, ar- looked around my house for a household object okay. and I have one. Go for it. Toaster. <laughs> Yes, that reminds, it's a real stumper, isn't it? I, I, that reminds me of of um, <clears throat> yeah, one one I did. Um, I've forgotten who came up with it now. It might have been Jess Tipton who came up with trampoline. 
Um, oh, nice. But, uh, but the, the, the next person nailed it because they talked about, yeah, well, you know, the materials of the trampoline. I was, I was like, oh, okay. No, you can't okay, stop job. But yeah, we're going to go with Toaster. Chains. Yeah, we're going to go with Toaster. Um, and, oh, this has been lovely, Hilary. Thank you so, so much. Um, so, yeah, have you got anybody you'd like to say hi to or, or uh, give a shout out to? Oh, gosh. Well, I'm just, I think I would just give a shout out to all the geography teachers who are listening to say how grateful I am and how much we need teachers right now. Yeah, and yeah. how much I wish I had been in one of their classrooms uh, myself as a oh. young learner. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, truly, none of this, none of the research we do, none of the, you know, the academia stuff that I do would be important at all if it weren't for those folks. So I'm really appreciative of those people and Aww. the fact that they're listening and using that time to listen to this. And I'm thankful for you for doing oh, the podcast and for inviting me. It's it's when I have people like you come on. Well, every single one of my guests just brings joy to my life and opens my eyes that tiny bit more. And, you know, as someone who is, you know, I'm, fine, I'm getting older now, but as someone who is able-bodied and stuff like that, I, you know, it again, another privilege check for me today. And thank you so much for bringing that to me, for enhancing my my worldview and my life for that. That's just so beautiful, Hilary. Thank you. Thank you, Kate. Please make sure, Hilary, we keep in touch because I certainly want to make sure that, uh, you know, the work that you're doing, you know, that it gets on geography teachers' radars. And in that spirit, I would like you to tell us where we can find you because I know that I'm hoping that when this episode goes live, hopefully you're going to get a few um, upticks in the follow account because your Twitter account is... My Twitter is my first name, Hillary, H-I-L-A-R-Y, H Hunt. So Hillary H. Hunt Hillary H. on Hunt. Twitter. So please come be friends. I'd love to meet you all. Please, folks. Please, folks. Um, wonderful human being. And if you just search for for Hillary, um, Hillary Haybeck Hunt as well, uh, University of Wisconsin, you know, you can, as with all the academic PhD students, you can get the profile and what, and what they're studying and stuff like that. Hilary, I've really, really enjoyed this. Um, thank you so much for giving up your afternoon to talk to us. And uh, please, please, please do keep in touch. Please do keep in touch. Yeah, thank you. I mean, thank you for making this possible and for inviting oh. me. It's such a joy. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you had fun. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe so more stories and experiences can drop into your favorite podcast app. If you fancy being a guest or have any feedback, follow us on Twitter at CoffeeJogPod and send us a DM. Or you could email coffeeandjog at geogramblings.com. Until next time, keep jogging.